founders of CNT uh, too long ago, uh, back in 1988, the company was established. So we've been around for quite a long time. Uh, back then, uh, we um, we were called Collar and Tie, and we were a theatre and education company, touring uh, participatory, but some performance-based work as well uh, around Worcestershire, um, which is a kind of rural county in the, the West Midlands of England. So it kind of stretches across to the Welsh borders on one side, up to Bromsgrove, Arctrix, where you where you previously worked, um, up to the um, outskirts of Birmingham, into the Cotswolds. So quite a diverse kind of area, really. You've got very, very rural, almost Welsh, and then pretty urban as well as you head towards up to, to the sort of industrial north of uh, the county. Um, and we we kind of created uh, work. We had a van. We had a team of actors. Um, lots of the work was um, curriculum-based. Lots of the work was issue-based. Um, uh, and that, that was the day job, basically. Um, participation was always more important to us, I think, than uh, creating plays, although we did commission a number of writers and toured performance pieces as well. But I think as a company, we were more interested in the, in the, the learning process in a space with, um, with students and, and with teachers. And I think one of the other early um, developments for us was that Worcestershire's uh, not a county with a huge amount of arts infrastructure. Um, uh, and so actually access to professional arts education was pretty meager at that point. And so we found very quickly that alongside the, the work with students in schools, there was a huge demand for professional development work with teachers, just trying to help teachers raise standards, develop new techniques and methods, and just sort of trying to build capacity within the whole sector um, uh, in, in the county. So very quickly, even back in those days, pre-internet, um, you could see that distance learning was going to be something that could become quite important to us. Um, and so we started to develop a whole range of projects that didn't really look like theatre and education. So we developed interactive comic books, um, which uh, kind of worked as stimulus materials um, that could be distributed um, to schools uh, and teachers could um, use these comics as starting points for drama in the classroom uh, and then collaborate with other schools by documenting their practice with photographs and good old-fashioned VHS tapes and things like that uh, uh, and work collaboratively with other schools but in a pretty kind of Luddite way which relied a lot on the Royal Mail posting things backwards and forwards between people. But we were trying to find a way of going, how can we connect all these very isolated, disparate schools together in some kind of practice that uh, that raises expectations and standards and makes people feel in this very diverse, diffuse county like they're part of one community. So that's kind of how we started, really. That's really interesting to find out because I only ever perceived you as a digital company, like traditionally. Is that the direction then that the company is now moving into? Absolutely. Well, absolutely. I, I think um, I feel a bit schizophrenic about that because I think uh, uh, at my heart, I'm an applied theatre practitioner. I, I like being in a room with young people making things happen. Um, but very quickly, when the internet was invented, basically, by the time we got to the mid-90s or the turn of the century, it became very clear that some of those things that we wanted to do um, uh, in terms of 
distance learning and connecting schools and collaborating could be done much better online than they could be done via the, 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 the paper and pen methods that we've been using up to that point. So in a, in a sense, really, we've been developing a model of practice, our sort of pedagogy and the techniques and the, the, the modes of working that we've been using, we're just waiting for the internet to be invented. So basically, as soon as the internet came along, it was kind of like going, this makes our life so much easier. We're now we can be really ambitious. Um, so, uh, so I kind of always feel that our work operates on a spectrum that I think if you put kind of applied theater or educational drama at one end of the spectrum and digital at the other. And I think we pick and choose where on that spectrum particular projects happen. Sometimes work feels more uh, about people being in a space together, but with digital intervening and contributing in some way. And at other points, uh, we're right at the other end where things look almost purely digital and people are still using our resources in ways that feel theatrical or dramatic or playful, but essentially they're, they're, they're just almost entirely digitally distributed. So, and I think that's the real fun of my job is that I get to pick and choose where I want to be on that spectrum on any particular day. If we were, if we were to go back 10 years, what did one of those early CNT digital yeah. projects look like? Well, so for example, um, uh, uh, a couple of our, uh, most popular projects and programs were, were first of all we um did a lot of work around living newspapers um which again are a, a, a not a new form of theater they date back to the 1920s and 30s uh, and are one of the earliest forms of documentary drama um we're back during the federal theater project in the united states where they got unemployed actors and unemployed journalists to collaborate and create plays about the big news stories of the day so they were sort of literally living newspapers and so we try to modernize that form uh, online so um so we kind of created a kind of almost like a kind of video game like structure whereby we created uh, a kind of covert network of uh um applied theater practitioners called the living newspaper and um, they sort of went by the name of tom kate and guy uh, and they were encouraging others around the world to work with them to try and subvert the values of the, the mainstream news media because the, the expectation that the, the perspectives and the views of young people weren't represented in the mainstream media and it was their job to try and redress the balance. So um, uh, online, we created a space whereby we could develop um, living newspaper collaborations where we would identify a big global topic or theme, perhaps something like today, it might be something like climate change. Um, uh, and then wherever people might be in the world, they could use the tutorials and guides and workshops that were built into that website as a way of interrogating that topic on their term so that they would create their own dramatic living newspapers, scenes, uh, short plays in their communities, which they could perform locally, but they could also video those and capture those and share them with the rest of our kind of living newspaper network. And whilst we started that practice just in the West Midlands where we were based, the internet doesn't care where you are in the world. So it became very, clear very quickly that we could engage people in lots of other places all over the world. So we, on that project, we had partners in uh, Australia and uh, in Africa as well. Um, so uh, so uh, and what's great about those sorts of 
project structures for us is that they're they're pretty timeless. The technologies that we're using move on and change, but just as living newspapers have been around for a hundred years, it doesn't go out of date as a concept. You can just reinvent it and reinvigorate it and apply new technologies and processes to it and um, and make it happen all over again. So we're hoping to do a, a new living newspaper project at the end of 2023, going into 2024. Um, Another project uh, we did a couple of years ago was called Push-Pull, which was uh, around uh, the migration crisis. And um, we, we did some research where we uncovered that um, most refugees over the last 10 years, if, if you go to a refugee camp uh, in somewhere in Turkey or, or perhaps in, in Calais in France, um, you'll find that those refugee camps provide essentially three things. They provide uh, food and water, uh, uh, refuge, and charging stations for mobile phones, um, because the mobile phone is the essential tool of people going on these journeys, what with interactive maps, um, messaging, being able to do bank transfers of money, book flights or buses or coaches, that they're an essential tool for people going on these journeys. So we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could work with people in different communities who had experiences of migration, research stories of migration in their, in their neighborhoods, dramatize those through drama and applied theater methods, but then capture those stories digitally using things like photographs or videos or text messages or news alerts or um, kind of FaceTime video calls, and then sequence those as narratives so that young people could then publish them and share them uh, with each other. So everybody could just pull out their mobile phone, click on a button and watch somebody else's story of migration from somebody on the other side of the world. Uh, so yeah, so you can use that as a, uh, as a way of bringing drama and digital together uh, in a way that's playful and essentially true to both mediums. It does feel like um, uh, it's dramatic and theatrical, but at the same time, it's using the technologies and the devices that young people all have in their pockets every day. What is so exciting about this work is that it's massively ambitious, like incredibly inclusive. What What's your thought process as to whether or not work it? Like, do you have to decide whether your next piece of work is going to be something with international reach or local engagement. What? How do you go about your project proposals? Because certainly when I can't ever imagine playing with like the sky's the limit, right? In terms of who we can engage with this. How do you go about narrowing that down and deciding, finding an anchor point, I guess, to begin with? What? How do your project proposals come about? It's a, it's a good question. Um, I think there are kind of two, two things that kind of frame and liberate the way we try and think about um, developing project ideas. I think one of them is uh, being a bit prosaic, but it's, I think it's quite important for us, all of us who work in this field, is that broadly speaking, all of us who work in this area haven't got enough money to do what we want to do. Um, you know, it's a... a uh, long said that we're the sort of Cinderella wing of the of the kind of theatre industry. Um, and so actually, a lot of the time when people are trying to create their work, inevitably, you're having to tailor your ambitions to the resources that you have available to you. 
Um, the internet doesn't really worry about that. When you're creating things virtually, you don't have to worry about the accommodation or the, the travel costs or how you're going to get the set from country A to country B, because the internet just enables you to distribute ideas and thoughts and concepts and methods um, almost freely. I mean, it's not, it's not as simple as that, but you know, essentially it's a really powerful way of distributing ideas and approaches and practice um, in a way that, um, that the kind of the live model of theatre um, would, would obviously struggle with. So uh, once we'd kind of moved to that position, it became a lot more liberating to go, well, there aren't the same kinds of barriers um, that, uh, that are in place if you're, if you're touring a show or something like that. Um, the second thing that I found very useful um, goes back to that idea when I was uh, talking about the living newspaper and about um, global themes. There, there was a, a concept I, I came across that I think it was developed initially in Japan in the 70s, and it kind of took hold a lot in marketing um, for a while, which was, was this notion of what was called glocalization. Um, and the example I, I remember reading very early on, that was, it was this notion that if you're like Nike, that you make your baseball cap and Nike created in America and they expect people to wear their caps in a particular kind of way. However, when it's been used for five or 10 years and you throw it in the, uh, the clothing bank and it gets shipped to Africa, uh, and somebody in Africa starts wearing it, they wear it in a completely different way, in a completely different style, because culturally, the way Americans wear it doesn't make any sense in their context. So they they adapt it and customize it for their circumstances. And that's this kind of notion of kind of um, global, in the case of Nike, global products that are reinterpreted in local circumstances. And I, I found that quite a liberating idea that so much about education is about putting learning into neat, narrow boxes. You know, you're in geography between nine and 10 o'clock in the morning, and then you move to maths and you're all in ability ranges or age ranges. And I kind of thought, well, actually the most inspiring learning is when you collide different points of view and different experiences and uh, not put us into narrow little boxes. So. Why don't we try and create a practice that's localized in that sense, that brings people together so that we might not always agree, but we can see different points of view and different perspectives. Uh, obviously, it throws up huge logistical questions when you start working internationally because time zones, just one for to start with, you know, I'm, I'm currently trying to coordinate schools in New York City with schools in Worcester. And, you know, that's that's a five, six hour time difference. Either somebody's got to get up early or somebody's got to stay behind after school. Um, but uh, but there are ways around that. And you, you just find the, 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 the practical solutions to those kinds of practical problems. You're so like you're so calm about all of this, Paul. Like that, that's what I love the most is that it's just it's just like second nature it's yeah it's captivating so so what are you working on currently well the 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 big idea for us over the last uh, 3 to 4 years has been our our digital platform called prospero about about 3 4 years ago we we'd done lots of these projects over uh, over quite a few years like the living newspaper and we were essentially still doing the same thing that theatre companies do, that after you kind of got to the end of the tour, we were sort of doing the digital equivalent of throwing the set in the skip, um, that we just sort of put that to one side and then moved on to the next project. And having done that for, for a, quite a few years, 
we kind of got to a place where we went, actually, why are we throwing away this stuff? Because we've learned lots of different ways of integrating drama and digital technology. Why don't we try and build a toolkit, essentially an online toolkit that allows us to kind of essentially drag and drop different techniques, techniques or methods into a kind of timeline which uh, we can then customize, we can add our own videos or tasks or instructions to, and then publish those so that anybody could access them. So that all essentially a teacher would need to do would be to go to Prospero, press go, and Prospero would stream a kind of interactive workshop direct into your classroom. Um, uh, and initially we kind of went, well, this would just be fantastic for us because it would just be a great way of us creating our projects and these, these kind of global collaborations. And it would mean that we could work much more quickly, much more fluidly, a lot more intuitively. But very quickly after we built it, it was quite clear that lots of other arts organizations and practitioners and teachers wanted to have a go themselves as well. But they kind of looked at it and went, well, this is exactly the thing that we need, that doing digital work can be really expensive. It can be very time consuming and it's sort of outside of the, the skill set of um, most applied theatre practitioners. So we, we sort of joke that we, we sort of went through the pain barrier so other people don't have to. Um, uh, so really what we're sort of interested in now is sort of trying to build Prospero as a, a space for anybody who wants to try and do this kind of work. Anybody who wants to either A, access some of these projects and learning resources to use with their students, their teachers, their youth theatres, their community groups, or if they want to create their own work in Prospero and share those with other people, either in their, their own local neighbourhoods or cities or regionally or internationally. So we're trying to build a kind of online community of people who want to be part of this sort of big journey and this big adventure with us. It sounds it sounds incredible. Would you be able to, for the benefit of the listeners, teachers, participants, artists, would you be able to give me a description of practically how you use the software? Of course, the, the, the best way to see what Prospero is and find out how it works is just to go and have a go. So um, uh, shamelessly plugging it, if you just uh, go to prospero.digital, uh, in your web browser, just search for it online, you'll you'll find Prospero. And uh, there are loads of different workshops, the vast majority of which are all free. So if anybody wants to go and have a look around and just try it out, it's, it's really easy to, to have a look at. But describing it um, here today, essentially there are kind of two sides to Prospero. There's what's called the Prospero library, and then there's becoming a Prospero producer. And the Prospero library is like, um, I kind of jokingly refer to it as kind of like the Netflix of interactive education. So if you go to the library, you'll find a whole series of different projects or, or workshops. Um, some are created by CNT, some are created by lots of our different partners around the world. Um, these workshops are what we call smart scripts. So they're um, both a combination of smart digital technology, but essentially they're about drama, they're about scripts, they're about making things happen in a room. And I quite often uh, talk to theatre people of, that a smart script is a bit like the kind of the book. 
you know, the, the thing you have backstage when you're doing a show. So, you know, the book is the master plan for what's going to happen during the production that the stage manager uses. You know, it's got the lines of dialogue and, um, and it's got the directions, but it's got all the lighting cues and all the prompts. It tells you where all the, um, the different sceneries go, etc. cetera. Um, Prospero is like a digital book. So that basically it organizes all the things that you would want to happen in a workshop in your classroom or workshop space and seamlessly makes them flow one through the other. So what might happen is typically if you're doing this in a school, you, you can configure Prospero in lots of different ways, but let's think of this being in a classroom setting. So if you had Prospero running on your uh, whiteboard in your classroom, or just having a data projector attached to a laptop with an internet connection, and you're projecting it on the wall. Um, the teacher or the workshop leader would go to the Prospero library. They'd look through the catalog of things that they want to access, choose the projects that they want to take part in, click on it. It opens up into what we then call a bundle, which essentially looks like, again, if you use the Netflix analogy, it sort of looks like all the different episodes in a TV series. Essentially, each one of those um, episodes, uh, those smart scripts, is your workshop. So they sort of organized into kind of schemes of work, if you like. And then you just click play. And Prospero then takes control of your computer and it organizes the learning that's going to happen in your classroom. So it might present uh, instructional videos where uh, experienced facilitators or teaching artists introduce uh, a particular project or a particular method. Uh, and then they guide you step by step through each of the different stages of those different tasks or, or activities as they navigate you through different methods or different content. What makes it different from something like uh, YouTube, because you could just go, well, why can't I just watch a, uh, a workshop on, on YouTube? Of course, YouTube is just a video and it will just play. Um, we know that actually watching uh, a video in a, uh, on YouTube is not the same as being in a live experience in a classroom. So what, what Prospero does is it breaks things down in step, into step-by-step -step stages. So it will ask you to say, first of all, get into a circle and you get into a circle. And then when you're ready, Prospero tells you to move on to the next stage where it might say, now find yourselves in groups of three. And then it waits until you're in groups of three before you move on. So it allows you to manage the learning in the classroom in a way that's paced to the experience and the skills of the, of the people who are taking part on any given day. So whilst it's a standardized uh, workshop, it's different every single time. Um, and you can also build in lots of different things uh, into your smart script. So for example, you can have what we call branching narratives. So you could say, for example, what warm-up game would we like to play today? Is it game A, B, or C? And you can choose the different activity that you want to do. Or you could create within a kind of almost like a forum theater style activity, you might create a, a moral dilemma where you might go, so at this point in the drama, should character A pick up the knife or phone for the police. And the group could choose which option to take, and then the narrative will flow off in a different direction. So you're kind of building in interactivity in a way which is much more playful than just a linear video would be. Um, and then there's loads of other things that you can do with Prospero. You can integrate um, uh, interactive maps. You can build other websites that are available online into your resources so that you can kind of 
uh, what we say, repurpose existing content from elsewhere online and frame it for your particular task or activity. For example, with living newspapers, documentary drama. Perfect. Um, Prospero is perfect for that because it will, um, every day you can, uh, the front page of every online newspaper is different every single day. So your, your Prospero workshop will be fresh and new every single day because the news will be changing and Prospero will be updating um, alongside that. Um, Prospero can also control lots of iPads or tablets or smartphones. So, for example, um, one project we did uh, a couple of years ago was in a school for children with uh, learning disabilities and who were neurodiverse in a special school in Worcester. And they uh, created some work around uh, James and the Giant Peach. And within the, the smart script, there were different group activities needing to take place in different points in the classroom. So Prospero, uh, if you imagine like the four points of a compass with the, the interactive whiteboard in the classroom being north and an iPad at east, south and west, um, Prospero would cascade different content at each of those screens so students could choose which group they wanted to go and work with. Uh, and then after they'd done that for five minutes, Prospero would change and all the activities would swap around on different screens or every child could log their smartphone into Prospero at the start of a session. And so perhaps if you're a teacher who's not used to organizing groups, Prospero can do that for you. So at the start of a session, um, Prospero would know that you've maybe logged um, 25 uh, smartphones into the system because 25 kids are there and they've all scanned the QR code and logged in. Prospero goes, uh, okay, the next exercise, you need to be in groups of five. Prospero does the maths for you and goes, so that's five groups of five. And it automatically turns five smartphones blue, five green, five red, five yellow. Find the other yellow smartphones in the room, and that's going to be your group. So it can start to organize different activities in the space for you. You can have polls where you make decisions. Um, students click to decide whether somebody's innocent or guilty, and then that will trigger a different narrative flow in the direction. Um, it can use a really exciting new feature called Pose, so that um, Prospero uses the built-in camera that we've all been using for the last three years on Zoom to physically track people moving in a space. So it can recognize when students make a tableau or an image, and it will respond to those tableaus or those images and propel the narrative in a different direction in response to the physical shapes that students make in the room. You can build interactive walks using Prospero's GPS functions, where you can use the, the built-in sat-nav features in everybody's phone to build guides uh, and adventures around your local neighborhoods and communities. So, so there's masses and masses of different things that make it playful and interactive in, in lots of different ways. Paul, do you ever do you ever like catch yourself and just for a moment like reflect on how revolutionary like this work is? Like you're 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 pushing your practice into the 21st century like it's incredible and i'm so thankful for this conversation because i'm i'm just completely mind blown like it's so inspiring and i'm just so thankful for the opportunity to sit here and and talk with you about this so thank well, that's, you that's very kind thank you well yeah it's a it's a great it's a great privilege um 
to be able to have the the freedom to to be able to do these sorts of things and um and i think one of the things i find quite liberating about the way we're working now with Prospero rather than the old way of just doing projects is that you never throw anything away. You're always adding to the pack with different things to do. So, so for example, the, the GPS function in Prospero wasn't there three years ago um, when we made the, the first versions of Prospero. And we were just approached by uh, a composer called Martin Ward, who we've worked with on several projects. Um, uh, he's done lots of work for many, writes lots of music for different theatre shows and um, operas and things. Um, and uh, he got uh, a grant to make uh, a musical walk around central London. And he'd been originally trying to create it as a podcast. Uh, uh, but he got to hear a Prospero and sat down with me and said, well, look, you know, could we build something that wasn't just like a podcast that just plays from beginning to end, but just responded to when people walked to a different location and would know where you were and track you and then go, oh, so I can see now you're outside theatre A, so play this piece of music. And when you get to theatre B, play this piece of music. He said, could Prospero do that? And I went, well, no, it can't, not today, but give me a month and we'll build that in and we'll make that happen. So always when people come along with something new, being able to take on that challenge and kind of add that to the, the pack, because whilst that enabled Martin to make amazing work for his project, everybody gets the benefit of it now. Everybody in the in the community gets to use those functions in different kinds of ways. So it's kind of not at all reductive about people being in different boxes, using different things. Everybody's contributing and sharing and building a, a common practice, which is which is really exciting. Yeah, it, it is. It is really really exciting, and I think again as we as this conversation progresses and we peel back more and more layers of your work to hear how this work began like the living newspaper work to now where it's progressed to it's it's just every step you take just alleviates another boundary in relation to access and that's the coolest thing and especially as artists or as companies like if you want to get your work into classrooms globally and you want to reach communities you never need to leave like your city like again when you were talking about like funding and things like that like this completely bridges that gap between makers mm -hmm. and audiences or participants it's fantastic it's so cool and i wanted to ask about your project with the giant puppet because i've seen so much press surrounding that project please t tell me about it <laughs> um well that that was um that was a really exciting thing to be uh, a part of um uh i'm sure many of your um uh podcast listeners and particularly in europe will uh, have seen a couple of years ago during um one of the the numerous lockdowns we all endured that um good chance theater who staged a remarkable play called The Jungle in London a few years ago about the refugee camp in Calais. Um, they created um, uh, a, a giant puppet called um, uh, Little Amar, um, which they did with um, um, handsprung puppets, the guys who did the puppets for Warhols. So they created this giant puppet of this um, 
Syrian girl called Amal. Um, and they created this incredible durational piece where this puppet literally physically walked from the Syrian border across Europe to across the English Channel and walked to Manchester. And uh, she was designed to symbolize and represent um, uh, all migrant children and the, the perils of their journey. And it was an amazing piece and got masses of coverage on, on social media. Um, I was a great admirer of it. it um, uh, broke the tedium of lockdown for me on many days watching um, everybody's social media posts of, of her story. Um, in September 22, um, uh, Good Chance Theatre took Little Amal to New York City. Um, they have a, a, a partnership with St Anne's Warehouse, which is an amazing theatre space just over the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, and the idea was to take Little Amal uh, to visit all the five boroughs over a two to three week period. And of course, Little Amal's story, whilst it's not the same um, migration story that we know uh, in the UK um, in terms of the challenges that um, we have about people crossing the channel, et cetera, and things like that. New York is a city of migrants. Everybody comes from somewhere else in New York City. So it echoed and resonated in different, but also relevant ways. Another great example of that localization principle. Um, we have a, a, a longstanding partnership with New York City Department of Education, who use Prospero on a whole range of different projects every year. And it, it's great to, to work so collaboratively with, um, with New York City. Uh, and they approached us and said, this giant puppet's coming here. How on earth can we create some kind of digital theater learning resources that all of those tens of thousands of children who see the puppet can access in their classrooms? Because a conventional theater and education project or touring piece wouldn't do the job. It's too big a, too big a challenge. So we created um, a whole set of digital resources based on the push-pull project about enabling people to tell their own stories of migration and adapted that for Little Amal. So what could happen was that young people could reflect on Amal's journey to New York City, and then in their local neighborhoods and their local communities, they could talk with families and friends, find out about their stories, and then dramatize those for themselves and capture those stories digitally and share them via Prospero. So Prospero was both working as a kind of teaching tool. It was the, the way that you could uh, um, guide students through the design and development and rehearsal of those stories of migration. But it was also the mechanism whereby they could capture those stories and publish them and share them with each other and for the wider public in New York City. And I think as well that we never forget for all of the, you know, the, the talk about the, the cool digital stuff that we do, that, you know, we're applied theatre practitioners and the applied bit of it is really crucial. That sort of part of the day job is kind of looking at issues, challenges, problems, needs and going, how can I apply? How can I apply what we do and how we work to help make a difference in relation to those problems? And that quite often means that because of the range of uh, people who come to us to want to use Prospero, um, that we have to work collaboratively with other people because we just don't have the skill set or the expertise. That we're, we're just um, currently working on, on, for example, two projects which are just going to be going live in Prospero 
over the, the spring and summer this year. One of them is an interactive nature trail uh, on a, a park um, in York, um, uh, working there very closely with all the people in the uh, the local environmentalists who obviously have huge sets of expertise in terms of nature and the environment in those areas that, that we don't have. We completely need them to work with us to make that happen. Um, and at the same time, we're working with a domestic abuse service um, uh, to kind of create resources for um, young teenagers about understanding um, toxic relationships and identifying the hallmarks of toxic relationships. Again, we wouldn't dream of stepping into that arena uh, without having people who understand those incredibly complex issues and how to address them. So it's always about partnership working and taking what we have and combining it with the skills of other people to, to, to try and support all these different issues and causes. What more can you excite us with? What are you currently working on? Well, the, 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 the thing that's um, keeping us really busy uh, at the moment is uh, an in incredible project. Um, uh, I can say that even by our standards, this one was just completely mad, um, where we worked um, uh, with Royal Central School of Speech and Drama and uh, the National Museum of Kenya and uh, an organization called Tara, which is the African Rock Art Association. And uh, they highlighted to us that there are various sites around um, Kenya, remote locations in Kenya, where there is lots of what's called rock art. Essentially, when we, if you kind of think of the kind of cliche of cave paintings, they're sort of like those, but they're largely engravings and they're not really in caves, they're just on rock faces. And these things are thousands of years old, but um, with uh, climate change, they're being worn away. Um, and they're in such remote locations that there's no such thing as being able to slap a preservation order on these things. They're just getting, they're, they're literally in valleys, in deserts. Um, and so what we've been doing there, we went on this uh, incredible week-long journey across deserts and valleys and landscapes and ravines um, to visit these locations. Uh, capture them digitally using virtual reality and 360 video and were making that into a kind of drama-based um, uh, adventure in Prospero. And then uh, this uh, kind of interactive experience that will be happening uh, both on your smartphone, on your computer, but also through virtual reality um, will be toured into schools in Corogocho, which is a, a slum district, uh, an informal settlement in the outskirts of Nairobi. It's home to about a, a hundred thousand people. Um, and th these kids in these locations living in extraordinary extreme poverty would never be able to get to visit these sites that are part of their, you know, cultural heritage. Um, uh, and so the idea is that we'll be able to use Prospero to take that experience of visiting those sites into those schools and give those those young people a sense of their own cultural their own cultural history so we we've, we've just finished the crusade as it were across the countryside which was the most um, incredible week i think i've ever experienced visiting these sites and we're currently building the resource in prospero working with local theater artists in nairobi and then that will be 
touring and visiting schools over the, the spring and summer um, in Kenya. And we hope as well, we're sort of interested in how in the UK, um, what opportunities there might be to open up these resources for art teachers in the UK as well. So that's keeping me busy. <laughs> I bet it is keeping you busy. Wow. What an experience. Honestly, that, that must have been crazy, right? It was absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy. Not very often in my life. But when you say earlier about, um, uh, you mentioned earlier about CNT's projects always being very ambitious, that there, there were a couple of points on that one where I was like, maybe I've been a bit too ambitious this time. Maybe this is, <laughs> but it, no, it was an absolute thrill. I mean, there, I mean, and I hope this will be communicated in the um, the final resource, but uh, because of the, the power of virtual reality and that, that 360 immersion, um, that when you stand by some of these pieces of rock art and you're standing on a, a cliff face on a ledge over a ravine and you look at this these these kind of uh cave these rock markings and you kind of go, and you know that like literally a 9 hour drive across a desert to get there and you kind of think um i'm probably one of only a handful of people who've ever stood here you know, and I'm standing on the spot where somewhere thousands of years ago, somebody carved these markings. It's not like going to a museum and, and, and looking at an artifact, which has been taken from somewhere and put there. You're kind of going, no, I am literally, you know, we talk in drama, don't we, about walking in other people's shoes. Uh, I sort of felt like I was definitely standing in the, the shoes or in the feet of somebody else from thousands of years ago doing these things. So hopefully that will translate into the Prospero experience using using VR wow like it's so it's so spectacular and i never ever ever want to hear you say that something might be too ambitious because your ambition certainly trickles down to those of us who work in the same practice and it's so inspiring to to sit here and listen to somebody also describe their their passion for ambition and their passion to make work more innovative and more inclusive um and i'm just really appreciative for the for the opportunity to sit and listen and and to be able to ask you questions about the, this incredible work that your company is currently producing so honestly thank you so much thank you no 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 well and and, and back to you tom that you know just to, just to say don't don't ever give up on on that on that just pushing at things and i think that's I mean, all theatre practitioners think, don't they, that they're doing something new and innovative. Every, nobody goes to work thinking they're just stuck in a daily rut. Everybody wants to be challenging themselves and, uh, and uh, creating new and innovative work. But I think what's really interesting about what, you know, what we do and from, from your work on Odyssey, from what I saw of it, it looked, it looked amazing. It really did look great, um, is that, you know, the, the thing is that the technology is not standing still either. None of us can get complacent about what the next thing will be you know uh you know chat gpt he's throwing out lots of big questions about um you know what does improvisation mean in the age of chat gpt um uh, and I, I always think that sometimes in these conversations you know and, and it's great to have you being enthusiastic about it and everything is that 
we, we sort of end up sounding a bit like digital evangelists that were sort of just sort of phrasing these things to the skies and that they are remarkable and they can make a huge difference. But it's important as well to ask the, the moral and ethical questions about what's the right thing to do with these things. When, you know, what are the boundaries of when, a, you know, the, the whole notion that, you know, um, 15 years ago, social media was the, the mechanism by which revolutions were triggered in uh Arab countries, you know, when we go back to the Arab Spring and things like that. Now, social media is regarded as the, uh, you know, uh, the source of all evil. So, um, you know, we have to constantly keep challenging ourselves about the ethics and values of these uh, these things at the same time as pushing for the playful, creative opportunities. And I think on that note, that's where we'll end this conversation. So a massive thank you to Paul. Thank you for your time. It's been a Brilliant. pleasure. Thank you.